0: Deuteronomy chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verse 21 for the sermon today, the 10th commandment, but I'm going to read the first 21 verses just to get the whole whole thing. So Deuteronomy chapter 5, starting in verse 1. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today And you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said... but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant, or your ox, or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So what started at the very beginning of this year, we have come to an end at the very last day of the year. We've made it to the end of the Ten Commandments now. It's taken the whole year off and on. And we've been through quite a lot. We've seen that the law of God is wonderful, too high for us to reach. We've seen how God has revealed his own character in this law. We've seen how we are to respond to this law. At first, we come to God through Jesus Christ for forgiveness, and then we come again to God through Jesus Christ for the promise of the Holy Spirit, because he has promised that he will write his law on more than just the tablets of stone like he did at Sinai. God has promised to write his law on our hearts so that we can obey like Jesus obeyed. For his yoke is easy and his burden is light, and God's commandments are not burdensome. But if any of the Ten Commandments would feel burdensome to us, this last one, this tenth one, is the one. We might convince ourselves that we have kept the first nine, having no gods before the Lord, making no idols to worship, honoring God's name and not taking it in vain, remembering the Sabbath day, resting from our work on Sundays, honoring our father and our mother. You know, we we don't murder, we don't commit adultery, we don't steal, we keep our lips from lying. But then when you come to this commandment against covetousness, well, it gets even the best of us. Like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus, it's recorded in multiple gospels, but in Mark chapter 10, we see this, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says to him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, do not or honor your father and mother. And then the man said to Jesus, teacher, I, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had many possessions. Now what is Jesus doing here? He's, he's pointing that young man, that rich young ruler, to the state of his heart. He had everything he could want. He kept all the commandments as far as he could tell and expected that because he knew no lack physically, he was provided for completely in his physical needs, then of course he had no lack spiritually either. But Jesus looked at him and loved him and did not leave this man in his delusion, but instead showed him that we, he was, in fact, poor spiritually. And that is one of the designs of this 10th commandment to show us that we are not so good at keeping the other nine as we think we are. The 10th commandment shows us the state of our heart that we are not spiritually rich, fully keeping what God has commanded what God has commanded, but rather we are poor. And we'll come back to this fact, but first let's look at the meaning of this commandment more closely. And after that, we'll, we'll look at the fruit of covetousness and what this commandment is for. So first, the meaning of you shall not covet. What, what does it mean to covet? Everything in this commandment hinges upon a proper understanding of covetousness. And we could do a lot of linguistic trickery to try and keep ourselves in the clear as far as this commandment is concerned. But the plainest meaning of covet is desire. You can see that right in the verse. Both words are used. First, it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And then it says, you shall not desire your neighbor's house. And everything else. So don't look at your neighbor's stuff and say in your heart, I want that. Now this does not prohibit all desires and all wants. Jesus was hungry. He was thirsty. He wanted food and drink. He desired things immensely. If you read his prayer for his people in John 17, or his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, you can see he had great desires. Greater desires than we know. And in fact, the Proverbs also are full of desires in their proper place. A husband's desire should be for his wife. And if a man desires to be well supplied and lacking nothing, then he does well to be diligent and work hard. Desires by themselves are neither good or bad. It is the object of desire that makes that desire legitimate or immoral. And here is part of the power of this commandment upon our hearts. Because desire for anything that is your neighbor's is an evil desire. And at this point, We can say, who hasn't broken this commandment? And we've even been given a list to keep us from wriggling out of the grip of it. Consider, just as we look through everything written in this commandment, line by line, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Ever thought, I wish my wife could cook or take care of the house or host parties like his wife does? I wish my husband listened to me more, brought home more money, spent more time with the kids like her husband does. If only I wasn't single. If only I had a husband or a wife like my friends do. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house. Well, you know, they've got such a nice house. It's so much newer than ours. I bet it's not drafty like mine, and it didn't even get cold this week when the power was out. Their kids can play in their big backyard. You know, if I had a house like theirs, I, I could have hosted the whole family this Christmas. His field? I remember field was their livelihood, but it was also their bank account. It's where their wealth was stored. Thinking, oh, that guy has the best job. He doesn't have to work weekends. Or... You know, she got maternity leave and it was fully paid. Or his parents left him so much money. You know, if I had that, I I really would be better off than him. I'd use it better. Or his male servant or his female servant. Thinking, (laughs) you know, turnover is just our worst expense. How does that guy get his employees to stay with him? You know, I could build a profitable business, too, if anybody would would be willing to stay working here. Well, of course she's got no labor shortage. Half her family works for her. His ox or his donkey. You know, I can barely get my car to start these days. If only I had that new four-wheel drive like the one that sits on the street most days. You know, those folks are retired. Why do they need a new SUV? or anything that is your neighbor's. You know, I sure wish our kids were as well-behaved as yours are. And you can really fill in anything else. Retirement accounts, good health, a happy disposition, the Christmas presents your sister or brother gave that were so more much more thoughtful than you, mental quickness, mental energy. Who could say... They are guiltless of the sin of coveting what is their neighbor's. You know, there's something, I guess it's a modern proverb, comparison is the thief of joy, but it really isn't. It's covetousness that is the thief of joy. Because you don't have to blind yourself to comparisons in order to be joyful. You don't have to ignore that there are differences in the world in order to be joyful. But when you look at what your neighbor has and covet it, think, I wish I had what he has instead of him. I'd be better off than he is. I deserve it more. That's when covetousness steals joy. Because covetousness makes us ingrates. It makes us into the child on Christmas morning that refuses to be happy because every present isn't his. He refuses to enjoy what he has because he's preoccupied with what his brother has. Which leads us to consider the fruit of covetousness. What does covetousness lead to? I will say covetousness is the parent of many sins. It gives birth to many, many other sins. There are many instances of this we can see in the Bible. Joseph's brothers were jealous of him. Jealous being another word for covetousness, perhaps a more familiar word for us. I know I think of after-school programs, the green-eyed monster. Joseph was the favorite child of Jacob, their father. He had literal dreams of grandeur. That his brothers and their parents would come and bow down before him. Recorded in Genesis 37, verse 11 says it explicitly. After after he told them about these dreams, it says, And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind, And then, when his brothers are away from home in the field, tending the flocks, Joseph is sent to them. And verse 18 through 20, we see, they saw him from afar, the brothers, they saw Joseph coming to them, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see what will become of his dreams. I mean, wowzers. Now, God does turn this murderous intent for good, but still, wowzers. Their jealousy, that covetousness over Joseph's position as the favorite son, nearly drove them to murder their own brother and pretend it was a wild beast who did it. they don't quite get that far. They only sell him into slavery instead and pretend he's dead. But that's covetousness mixed with hatred, which is actually what the sin of envy is. Envy is desiring anything that belongs to your neighbor combined with hating him for having that thing. Now, another instance is recorded in 1 Kings 21. We have King Ahab, a wicked king of Israel, He's coveting Naboth's vineyard. He wanted it for his own, and when Naboth wouldn't trade it to him or sell it to him, Ahab became an absolute crybaby. Recorded in 1 Kings. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father's. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. And his wife Jezebel had absolutely no tolerance for her husband like this, so she orchestrates a mob execution of Naboth and got the vineyard for Ahab anyways. Now, Jezebel was the murderous one. I can't say that Ahab's covetousness went all the way into murder, but he wasted no time and going to take the vineyard once his wife told him that Naboth was dead. One more example, this time from the book of Acts, chapter 17. Caleb recently finished preaching through 1 Thessalonians before we did Advent. And one of the key themes in that letter was the suffering that the Thessalonians were facing. And this suffering was because of jealousy. When Paul was in Thessalonica... He preached Jesus to them in the synagogue and were told that many believed, but others grew jealous. It says, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So Paul and Silas were forced to leave the new Thessalonian believers behind and flee the city. And the leaders of the synagogue that did not convert, did not convert rather, persecuted the new church there. And you can see this sort of thing also happening in chapter 13 in the book of Acts, a little bit more drawn out, but it's all because of jealousy. Covetousness is a sin of the mind that does not stay in the mind. It makes its way out into action, into harmful, hateful, and murderous action. And those are just three examples. I mean, I could go on. Cain and Abel, the Sodomites and Lot, Ishmael and Isaac, Esau and Jacob, Saul and David, the false prophets and Jeremiah, Haman and Mordecai, the Babylonians and Daniel, And to top it all off, Pilate himself, wicked man that he was, recognized that the chief priest had delivered Jesus over to kill him because they were envious of him. I mean, covetousness is clear all throughout the Scriptures as a leading cause of a great many evils. It's not as though God had nine great commandments and just wanted to round out the list with something else. Covetousness is as great a sin as any of the other ten. Which leads us into a conclusion. Three points of a conclusion. Be on guard against all covetousness. Recognize covetousness as apparent sin. And respond properly to God and his law. So first, be on guard against all covetousness. It's recorded in Luke chapter 12. Jesus is stopped by someone in a crowd. He's ministering to a crowd and teaching, and someone in the crowd stops him, and he starts by demanding that Jesus settle a dispute with his brother. First, Jesus replies directly to the man, says to him, Man, who made me a judge and arbiter over you? It's not Jesus' place to settle this dispute here and now. That's not what Christ came for. But then Jesus turns to address the disciples and the gathered crowd. Always a teachable moment. And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus gives the antidote to this brother's covetousness. And it's good for us too. Our life does not consist in abundance of possessions. You are not the sum total of what you own. You Your net worth is not what you're worth. And having your neighbor's house or car or wife or wallet will not improve you. Covetousness cannot grow in a heart that is content. So be on guard against a desire for what is your neighbor's. And more than that, recognize that accumulating stuff isn't the measure or goal of life. And be content with what the perfect. Wisdom of God is content to give you. Secondly, recognize covetousness as a parent sin. Not a parent sin because it affects only parents, but a parent sin because it gives birth to other sins. I mean, have you experienced this? This is just one example, one, one way that this happens. But you get some good news, whether it's a promotion at work or an engagement, an inheritance, whatever it is, some good favor, good fortune happens to you. And in the middle of this good fortune, a relationship with someone close to you starts to sour. As your coworker, who was with you in the trenches of your job, now they start treating you a little bit poorly because you were just promoted. And you try to work it out, and you think, You know, have I done something? You try to talk to them about it. You're worried that you you did do something. You can't figure it out, though. And it seems like they really don't have a rational reason to give you for treating you the way that they're treating you. They've just sort of decided they don't like you as much anymore. I'm not saying that covetousness is universally the cause of all interpersonal problems. But when you are faced with the question of what is causing this quarrel, what is causing this fight, it would be wise to go to the chapter in the Bible that starts with what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you. James chapter 4 says exactly that. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So if you find yourself in a situation like that one, you're like, what just happened? Something good happened to me, and now this person doesn't like me anymore. It doesn't make any sense. Yes, go. First, try to be reconciled to your brother. First ask them, have I wronged you in any way? And seek wisdom from others to see, you know, help assess the situation for you. But recognize that covetousness is the cause of a great many quarrels and fights. And you may not have done anything wrong. But all your attempts to remedy the relationship may cause more strife if you don't understand why it's estranged in the first place. Finally, properly respond to God and his law. Throughout the series on the Ten Commandments, we've gone over several different responses people have to the law of God. You can look at God's commandments and hate them and hate him, not bothering to follow them, and perhaps even intentionally breaking them. But I won't spend a whole lot of time on that option, because I doubt you'd be sitting here if that were the case. You can also look at the commandments and think that this is the way to work yourself to perfection, adding up all your good deeds like the rich young ruler. But I hope that you see how foolish he and any who follow him are. That just as Jesus once looked at him and loving him, totally dashed any hope he had of making it on his own, that Jesus looking at you and loving you would smash any and all idols that you have of self-sufficiency. But then what? What do we do then? Well, the rich young ruler needed to see he wasn't rich at all. He was, in fact, poor in spirit. And he needed to see that because blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, there's no virtue in poverty on its own. There's no virtue even in believing that you're poor in spirit unless you actually come to Christ to be made rich. But tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners entered the kingdom of God before the most religious people, the Pharisees in Jesus' day, because they knew well that they were poor in spirit and they needed someone else to be rich on their behalf. And the religious people thought that they had it mostly figured out. Oh, sure, let's consider what this guy from Galilee has to say. You know, maybe he can get us over that last hump you know, into perfect righteousness. We're really close. We just need a little nudge. And those very people who thought that, who thought they were so near to God in their righteousness, were the very people who nursed covetousness in their hearts against Jesus and plotted against him in their envious hate and killed him. They were so near to perfection in their own eyes that they rejected their God and killed his promised Christ. We must not be like them. But we are the religious people. So we must watch out for the kinds of sins that catch religious people up. We must watch out for thinking that we've really got it going on. We've got it mostly figured out. We just need a little nudge, a little help. So what do we do, though, if we've seen that? If we've come, we've humbled ourselves, come to Christ so that his righteousness is ours, that his riches are what make us rich, and we ourselves know that we are poor in spirit then what is the value of the Ten Commandments for us? It's life. Life to us. We are to live life according to these commands, just as Moses said in what I read at the beginning. But the question is, how in the world do we do this? Well, Christ... Has made those who are poor in spirit rich in more ways than one. Not only are we rich in a righteous status, that is, justified, declared righteous before the judgment throne of God, that we can stand before him and come to him in prayer and call him Father, but we are also rich in holiness. Christ is our justification, but Christ is also our sanctification. He has promised in the new covenant that he will write his law upon his people's hearts, that we may keep them with a true heart. He's promised that in the new covenant. And the table before us is the new covenant table. Don't hear me wrong. I am not saying Christ cleans you up and helps you get your acts together and so now you do the things that he tells you to do or else. I am saying Christ is to you perfect righteousness and all the power that you need to live a holy life according to his commandments. He is both. And if you need help keeping the law, as we all do, Then come and eat. Come to Jesus Christ and find in him all your needs satisfied. You know, this week was like somewhere between three days and 17 days, I don't know, between Christmas and New Year's. If you've had a great week or you've had a poor week, if you feel weighed down under your sins or how you may have been sinned against, Come and be strengthened by your God for keeping his word. Don't say, I'm too unworthy to come. Don't list off all these things that prevent you from coming. Even though you want to, you're just not worthy to. That's, that's not a question. Of course you're unworthy. That's not a question. Nobody is worthy of Jesus Christ. It's a gift. So if you've nursed covetousness in your heart, if you've sinned this week, come in all your poverty and take and eat and be made rich and Christ will strengthen you. Christ will feed you with the food that you need. The Apostle Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 11, that on the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I just want to explain maybe a logistics of this before I pray and the worship team will come up and play and you can come forward and take the bread and the juice. This meal is for strengthening believers. This meal is not for perfect people. This meal is for Christians. This meal is for those who have trusted Christ for their salvation and are trusting him for their sanctification as well. If that's not you, You can remain where you are. Don't worry about it. But consider, consider what I've said. and Consider Christ and coming to him. Parents with young children, if they've professed faith in Christ, if they're trusting him, please invite them to come and take and eat as well. And if not, use this time to teach them, to explain to them what's going on and why you're doing it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us the greatest gift in giving us Jesus Christ. And in him we have absolutely everything we could ever want or need. Forgive us for our covetousness. Forgive us for our discontent. Strengthen us by this meal, by your Holy Spirit, by communion and fellowship with each other and with Jesus Christ himself. That we would be grateful and content with all that you have given us, that we would be empowered to keep all your commandments, that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, and that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for the great sacrifice and the great gift that you have given us freely. Now let us come and eat, in Jesus' name, amen.